Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Mariana King to discuss her book, The Crisis of School Violence, A New Perspective. Thanks for tuning in. The Crisis of School Violence is the only interdisciplinary book about school violence. It presents a broad and in-depth approach to the key questions about why bullying continues at an unprecedentedly high rate and why rampage shootings continue to shock the nation. Based on extensive research, the book investigates human nature and its relation to aggressive behavior, with a special focus on the culture of violence that predicates school violence and perpetuates industries that profit from violence. The Crisis of School Violence presents the considerable psychological and neuroscientific research on the effects of violent entertainment media on the brain and behavior, which clearly reveals a causal connection between exposure to violent media, especially violent video games, and increased violent behavior. Mariana King's academic and other professional work focuses on violence and violence prevention. As an educator, she's worked with elementary school children in gang-active communities, as well as with university students, gang members, and violent offenders. She's published articles for the National School Boards Association, the National Association of Secondary School Principals, and other professional organizations. Because of her groundbreaking work on violence prevention, she was honored with a New Mexico Woman of the Year Award in the year 2000. Thank you so much, Mariana, for taking the time to join us today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Kurt. Uh, As I've just read in your bio, Marianne, you have a lot of experience working on issues of school violence, uh, both academically, you know, in your research and in the field. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to that work and how it led to this book? Well, I first became interested in violence when I administered a gang prevention program in a gang active community. And gang members uh, didn't like me uh, or my work, apparently, because they stole my car and exploded it. And that prompted me to write, to look more thoroughly into it and to write a master's thesis about gang violence. After that, uh, at UCLA, I became interested in the development of consciousness and the role of media violence in the development of consciousness. And I wrote a thesis about how the brain, well, it's a, a neurosociological perspective, which means how the social climate affects the extent and the ways in which we use the left and the right cerebral hemispheres. And I discovered that because of the technology and the content that entertainment media calls forth the involvement of the right cerebral hemisphere, which is the hemisphere that wants to be entertained, that's interested in facial recognition and music and drama, whereas the left cerebral hemisphere, which processes the three R's, is interested in critical thinking. So that finding, uh, it was based on international research that's been conducted since the 70s, that finding continued my interest in the influence of entertainment media, not only in youth violence, but in the what seems to be a growing mean-spiritedness within the United States, which, uh, as you know, is uh, called the culture of violence. I became interested in school violence in 2008, after the Virginia Tech shootings, because I started to realize that schools are the crucible of future violence, and we need to address school violence in order to prevent societal violence in general. So that prompted my looking more deeply 
into the influence of violent electronic entertainment media and especially uh, the profoundly influential role of uh, violent video games. And the book really extends your master's research that you mentioned into current work that shows how media content involves the right cerebral hemisphere of the brain, which you point out is the non-critical thinking hemisphere. I'd, I'd like to come to some of the neurological research a little bit later in the discussion, but for now, you know, I find that really interesting that you describe schools as a kind of crucible of violence. What is it about the school system that makes it into a, a place where these kinds of things happen or that influences the people who go there to engage in violence with one another? Well, this would be an example of social and economic injustice in the larger perspective of the culture of violence in which a lot of money goes into war and into development of weapons rather than being directed toward the well-being of people and especially the role of education. Schools are underfunded. I was an elementary school teacher and I had 27 students in my class in South Central LA and it was very difficult. It was exhausting work and now with more disruption in the classroom and the threat of school violence and the continued high presence of bullying it's even more stressful than ever and fatiguing for uh, teachers to uh, be effective in, in the current school climate. The book includes a chapter called the, the Culture of School Violence because the culture of school violence is a microcosm of the larger culture of violence. And the culture of violence, as I point out in my book, is entwined with what I call the violence industries. The United States is called the culture of violence because we have the largest war economy in the world. We export the most nuclear weapons. We have the highest rate of gun ownership. We have the highest rate of domestic violence. And we have one of the highest rate of poverty in the industrialized world and one of the shortest lifespans. So we have to look at what is it about the culture of violence that is, it seems to be almost like self-perpetuating. So we have to look at the role of the violence industries, including the war industry, the violent entertainment media industry, the weapons industry, and especially the violent video game industry, because all of these industries perpetuate and have enlivened the culture of violence and uh, the advent of uh, this, what the FBI calls a new and unique violence, which are rampage shootings. They're new and unique. So we have to look at what are the underlying deeply rooted societal factors that uh, have generated this new and uh, horrifying form of violence. One of the characteristics of your book is to say that, you know, as you've just described, school violence is part of a larger culture of violence, that it perpetuates in a culture where we have a war industry and a violent entertainment industry and et cetera. Another thing that I think that you do sort of uniquely in the book is to say that rampage shootings, which you've just said the FBI described as a unique kind of occurrence, they're actually a part of a larger culture of school violence that includes bullying and even such things as vandalism. Could you say a little more about what the culture of violence looks like at a school? What, what does violence look like in schools and how does that affect, you know, sort of the teachers and students who go there and work there? Yes. Well, looking at the looks of the school, many schools, especially since uh, rampage shootings, have become barricaded and they look like prison yards. Uh, I saw this in South Central L.A. because of the high rate of burglaries and thefts and gang violence in South Central L.A. 
where one of the 10-year-old students very insightfully said that uh, this looks like a prison. So that's part of the problem. The other problem, of course, is related to not getting enough funding is classrooms that are too large, students that are disruptive. Uh, a friend of mine commented, sure, if students are going to be disruptive in the afternoon after they have a lunch of jello and hot dogs. So we have to look at what students eat. Uh, they might drink up to a quart of, of Coca-Cola every day, and sugar is attached to aggressive behavior. So it could be, even be said that the food industry is one of the violence industries. The thing about the culture of school violence is that it's, it is a crucible for future violence because we're raising aggressive and violent kids within the school culture. But also the school culture itself is often characterized by hierarchy. You know, the Columbine shooters complained about the jocks and the preps, and the research in recent years shows that hierarchy in schools is increasing. And uh, also with this mean-spiritedness that seems to be permeating the culture, that bullying has not decreased despite tremendous efforts and resources. It's held at bay. But because school violence prevention programs do not include media literacy and do not account for the powerful effects of the violent entertainment industry, they tend not to work, or they work uh, kind of, sort of, but they tend not to get to the heart of the problem. Another aspect of the culture of school violence since the advent of rampage shootings is uh, there's a, a more heightened sense of fear. We have metal detectors and school resource officers and barricades and surveillance cameras. And uh, so the environment itself projects fear. But just the knowledge of the prevalence or the possibility of rampage, uh, a rampage school shooting has created this heightened sense of uh, kind of vigilance and fear, I think, in many school districts. It's a paradoxical point, right? Because we have, you know, on the one hand, it's a very real concern that something would happen at a school. And so you want there to be a system in place to protect against it if it came to that. Uh, but at the same time, you, as you say, you're perpetuating this whole cycle of surveillance and fear and heightened anxiety uh, about it happening. And, and that's the kind of thing that folks who perpetuate rampage shootings seem to enjoy to some degree? Yes, and, and the, the irony is that surveillance systems tend not to be effective in preventing school violence, but they, I'm, I'm concerned with what they communicate, especially to the students, about uh, you know, living in a fearful society or a fearful climate. So preventing school violence, going beyond surveillance techniques, going beyond counseling, which tends not to work, conflict resolution tends not to work because bullying, for example, is not about conflict, it's about power. Uh, peer mediation tends not to work. What does work is media literacy and openly having uh, school violence prevention programs which talk about hierarchy, you know, as well as bullying by teachers of students, bullying by administrators of teachers, and bullying by board members of others to the detriment, of course, of, of student life. So again, this means spiritedness, and of course it varies from school to school, but my experience is that many schools have that kind of underlying tension and disease because of uh, not really being compassionate, loving places. And part of that is not having enough money. That's not the whole uh, answer, but having doubling uh, school budgets, for example, having cl half class size, 
having wholesome food and having really media literacy efforts integrated into the curriculum involving parents paying students stipends to learn about media literacy and teaching it to other other students. There's really very effective ways of truly preventing school violence rather than addressing the symptoms. I'd like to say more about prevention sort of as we progress through the interview. I was wondering if we could focus just a little bit more on the causes of violence, because I think that one of the things that I see that happens in the wake, especially of a rampage shooting, is we sort of throw our hands up and say, well, what, you know, what, what could we possibly do? How could we possibly know what, what could have caused such a thing to happen? And one of the kind of myths that you confront in the book is the idea that rampage shooters are, you know, all sociopaths or psychopaths who are on a kind of hell-raising mission to destroy as much life as possible. You point to other causes. Could you say a bit more about what seems to cause that kind of violence? The psychologists who've written a couple of books about the pathology of rampage shooters note that not all rampage shooters are crazy. Some are, but the uh, FBI, for example, says there's no accurate profile of a school shooter. Many of them, the anomaly is that many of them come from stable, loving families in good communities. They tend to be uh, in rural areas rather than urban areas, Uh, but they have shared characteristics, and the shared characteristics relate to human nature. I have a chapter uh, about human nature in the work of Paulo Freire, who's a liberatory educator uh, from Portugal, and the social psychological, archaeological, anthropological, and psychological research indicate that by nature, because of the need for early human survival, we had to be empathic. We had to be compassionate with each other. Uh, we had to share tasks equally. We had to have mutual regard and respect because we had to take care of each other. And the studies show that, for example, classrooms which are cooperative and democratic tend to have less aggression and violence because we're tapping into this need and sense of community cooperation and giving. So we have to look at, well, what is it about the culture of violence that turns our innate nature upside down so that some people are bullying or hostile or murderously violent? What is going on? And the book points out that basically, especially violent video games, teach and train qualities and behaviors which are the opposite of human nature. Rather than teaching compassion, they teach murder. Rather than teach cooperation, they teach competition. Rather than teach gender equality, they teach violence against women. Uh, Rather than teaching doing good for the community, they teach uh, egotism and narcissism. So we have to look at the root causes. The very root cause is injustice. Social injustice in terms of hierarchy that's generated uh, within the culture of violence and the culture of school violence, separation and alienation caused by a variety of factors such as competing, feeling better than, putting down, success is measured by money or attractiveness, and look at the more basic human elements of respecting gender, respecting equality, and working toward that. The schools need to embody that in order, basically, and this sounds a bit dramatic, but basically for this uh, survival of the human race. You know, it's interesting, as you were talking, I was thinking about how wide 
how wide reaching the book is. We described it at the beginning as a as an interdisciplinary endeavor, and you've mentioned Paulo Freire and um, some of your your studies of neuroscience. One of the things that you do in the book uh, that I found really compelling is you go all the way back to thinking about Darwinian notions of evolution and the sort of difference between thinking about the survival of the fittest and what Darwin actually wrote, which was about survival of the fit. And I think that serves as a sort of common root of all of the things that you're talking about here, which is to say that we've somehow mistaken human nature in the culture of violence as predatory, competitive, violent, when in fact it's something else. Yes, and this uh, Herbert Spencer, the, one of the founders of modern sociology, was a son of a Presbyterian and raised in Victorian England, you know, in the belly of capitalism. So he distorted what Darwin wrote into survival of the fittest in order to justify the competitiveness of capitalism and started this really powerful influence because people often, probably 98% of, of people believe that Darwin wrote about survival of the fittest, which brings me uh, to the uh, whole idea of, of misinformation, that people don't know that there's a connection between uh, video game violence and media violence actually causing increased aggression and violence. People don't know that because of misinformation and disinformation. The misinformation is perpetuated by a handful of uh, psychologists who do sloppy research, but they have a wide range of audience because they write pretty prolifically. To the Supreme Court decision in California in 2011, which basically said that it's okay for uh, violent video games to be sold to minors. And as critics of that decision point out that they base that decision on the First Amendment and not on research. The Supreme Court, for example, quoted researchers who had a total of, say, uh, 48 citations compared to the other group of researchers which talk about causation who have over a 1,000 citations. So, and of course, the media, which is self-interested, tends to downplay the study results that show this connection between media violence and violent behavior you know, out of self-interest, which is another form of economic injustice in which one of the violence industries, to an extent, runs renegade, you know, to the detriment of society at large. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Mariana King discussing her book, The Crisis of School Violence, A New Perspective. You've sort of moved us in your response from the causes to um, thinking about particularly media causes, which is the other big factor that you discuss in the book. I was especially interested in your what you've just started to mention here, which is research into the neurological link between violent electronic media and violence, you know, and aggressive behavior. Could you talk a little bit about how does violent media affect the brain, and then how is that, as you say, causally uh, translated into uh, aggressive behavior? Well, media in general elicits the involvement of the right cerebral hemisphere, which is the non-critical hemisphere which, frankly, I think mass exposure to a right hemisphere influences uh, via the media is one of the reasons why there are so many people in the country at this time who are unable to think critically about the crises facing us. It's a failure of education, but it's a failure of critical thinking. Uh, in terms of violent media, and especially violent video games, the functioning of the frontal lobes, the executive functioning of the frontal lobes, 
which allows people to think rationally is uh, compromised. And the more you play violent video games, for example, the more compromised the executive functioning is. So you're less likely to think before acting. The amygdala is at the base of the uh, right cerebral hemisphere, and it controls fear and aggression. The amygdala is profoundly affected by being exposed to violent electronic media. The book includes a chapter called The Brain's Response to Electronic Entertainment Media, which goes into the technical detail of, of why the brain responds as it does. But this results overall in terms of behavior and feeling. It results in systemic desensitization. And we, we have to think in terms of desensitization that the younger that people are, the more desensitized they are because there's more of an electronic surround which projects and reinforces desensitization and also there's more violent content nowadays. So the, the younger the people are, the more desensitized they tend to be. Another effect is increased aggression and violence toward women and girls because many violent video games are violent sexist games. There's some new research coming out of Italy which illustrates that the more exposed that gamers are to violent sexist media, uh, for example, the more accepting they are of the rape myth, you know, that is, the girl or the woman was asking for it. And so we have to look at the increased murder rate of women in the past decade and a possible connection to exposure to violent sexist video games. Another uh, behavioral result is uh, I'm starting to look more closely at the connection between racist stereotypes and violent video games and the connection to rampage shootings and say against uh, Jewish synagogues or you know, Islamic temples. I'm starting to look into that research, which is just beginning to emerge. Some of the work that you do in the book revolves around first-person shooter games specifically. Could you talk about their, the role that, that those games seem to play in rampage shootings? Well, I think the major contribution of the book is its ability to link rampage school shootings with first-person shooter games. And the way I do this, I do a history of technological development, as well as a history of the rate of youth violence, the rate of bullying, and the rate of rampage shootings. And I discovered that rampage school shootings and bullying significantly escalated, exponentially grew after 1992. And so I had to ask, well, what happened in 1992? First-person shooter games became widely popular in 1992. The 1990s saw this high rate of school rampage shootings, which has been held in check to uh, a certain extent by a massive amount of resources being put into preventing bullying and rampage school shootings. And it includes the creation of the U.S. Department of Justice's Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, which is creating a Title V program specifically to prevent youth violence. And then in the 90s, we had the COPS program, 100,000 new COPS on the beat. Uh, we had the Million Man March, which mitigated young black youth violence. So we had some major resources at work, plus a lot of money being put into school surveillance technology and counseling programs and intervention programs, such as students uh, reporting bullying or students reporting other students who they suspect have the capacity to become rampage shooters or who've talked about rampage shooters. 
So these resources have kind of kept a lid on rampage school shootings. But again, they're not addressing the root causes of rampage school shootings or uh, violence in general, which is deeply rooted in justice. I wonder if we could explore the role of the violent video games a little more a little a little more deeply because I'm curious about how how do we answer the charge you know that you you say that there's a causal connection between playing violent video games and aggressive behavior which ultimately leads to rampage shooting and you've mentioned some sort of societal mitigating factors that prevent against it I guess what I'm wondering is the prevalence of first-person shooter games, video games more broadly. The number of folks who play them is is enormous. It can't be proportional to the number of rampage shootings that's happening. Yes, there are a number of studies, including uh, one done by the FBI and the National Threat Assessment Center, that have come up with a tentative profile of, of school shooters. What is, I think, very important is that public school shooters, as well as rampage school shooters, have a number of characteristics. There's something called triple entitlement in the literature, white male heterosexuality. 97% of rampage shooters are male, excuse me, white males. So we have to look at the sense of entitlement within a sexist, you know, gender stratified society and how that sense of entitlement is reinforced by violent video games in which the gamer has the ultimate decision of life over death, you know, repeatedly throughout the years. The rampage shootings have other characteristics in common, often an early exposure to gun guns, a father who uh, collects guns. They tend to be small in stature, not athletic. Many are, aren't particularly attractive to girls. But what they all share in common, including the public rampage shooters, is they've experienced a series of injustices or perceived injustices that have accumulated as risk factors. There are risk factors such as uh, early exposure to guns, exposure to media violence, being bullied, that accumulate over time and uh, come to a point where there's a catalytic event, such as a rampage school shooter or his girlfriend breaking up with him suddenly. And so this rage has built up. What we need to look at is, and which none of the books that I've come across really address, is what causes the rage? Let's look at the root cause of the rage. The root cause of the rage is that the rampage shooter's nature, human nature, is being violated by this series of events, by the violence industry, profit motive, and by a sense of being entitled to indulge in mass murder in order to, to, to get justice. Now, part of human nature, my research also shows, is that we are justice-loving. Like even children say, that's not fair, you know, at the age of four. We know what's right. We know what's just. And when we consistently experience injustices, real or perceived, the anger grows. So we have to address the root cause, what causes injustice. So I think now would be a good time to start looking at some of the solutions that you offer. At the, at the end of your introduction, you say that the book is really a call to action that offers ways for readers to help prevent school violence. Uh, and the last chapter deals with both the future of violence and offers some ideas about what we can do. I was interested to see that throughout the book, you, you talk about the crisis of rampage shooting and school violence more broadly as a kind of opportunity. Could you 
say a little bit about that framing and what the solutions are that you suggest in the book? Well, the, the Chinese glyph for crisis is the same as their glyph for opportunity. And this crisis presents the opportunity to really look hard at what is going on. Why isn't this being addressed? Why is the problem, uh, especially rampage shootings, why is the problem growing? You know, what is going on? What can we do? So there are organizations, the book has an appendix of organizations such as the Center for Media Education, Truce, which is a national a teachers resisting violence group and other organizations that are aware of the powerful influence of the violence industries and are working personally and through legislation to regulate the violence industries. So one of the first things to do, though, is to recognize how we in industrialized countries are all more or less desensitized and to acknowledge that. And secondly, there's something called the third person effect where people tend to say, oh, advertisements don't influence me, or I'm not influenced by uh, violent media, maybe other people are. We're all influenced by advertisements, by violent media, uh, and by, you know, the perpetuation of a culture of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, we're all part of that culture. And to acknowledge that and to take action from that platform is where to begin, to become involved with these groups, uh, to encourage legislators to be more responsible in not only enacting legislation, but enforcing it. And uh, to look at the example of uh, uh, other countries like Canada. Canada believes in the freedom of speech and the First Amendment, but they also concede that violent video games supersede the need to express violence uh, in favor of the well-being of the society at large. In Europe, many European Union countries have strict laws and regulations about the sale of violent video games. The last I heard, an extreme example, I think, is uh, in Germany a few years ago, a retailer could do jail time for selling uh, the video game Mortal Kombat. So other countries that are highly democratized and respect and honor freedom of speech and freedom of expression have put a lid on uh, the renegade violence industries and their bullying and, and rampage shooting problems are uh, minimal compared to that experienced in the United States. And legislation can be passed. As I point out in the last chapter of the book, you know, the government knows that at heart, we the people call the shots, forgive the metaphor, and that we the consumer are what determines whether or not industries stay alive. So we need to acknowledge our power. The task is formidable. These industries are, are billion-dollar global industries, and there are many fans, many gamers, who would deny the, uh, that the violent video games have any effect on them. But as I said, we're all affected. But we all, we're also powerful. And to be truly powerful and in action, we need to acknowledge the, thres the threshold that we're working from. I wonder if we could extend that a little bit further into the thinking about schools, particularly one of the things that you talked about in the book, and I think it's related even to, you know, talking about regulation efforts more broadly and government intervention and in, in media activities and other industries, whether it's, you know, the sugar industry or uh, the war industry. But in the book, you talk about how um, making classrooms more democratic might help with the problem of school violence. Yes. The schools, first of all, schools need to, to feed wholesome food to the students and not sugar-laden food. And they should not have 
soda pop machines or candy machines in the hallways. And that needs to happen from the top down. You know, the adults need to recognize what's going on. Uh, if there were more money to fund schools adequately, there would be smaller classes, fewer disruptions, you know, more one-on-one -on -one, uh, handling of the, uh, the children. But in the meantime, for teachers to deal with what they must, must deal with is to instill uh, democratic decision-making, to em truly empower young people. We all want power. We all want to be uh, efficacious and capable. We all want to be able to make decisions. So we really truly need to empower young people in the classroom, uh, teach them democracy, teach them cooperation. And with that would come empathy and more compassion and more uh, human feeling toward each other, you know, to develop our true natures within the classroom. And teachers can do that. But a key item is introducing media literacy, literacy into the curricula so that people become aware of how media manipulates us and to look at the adverse effects on ourselves, to teach more self-consciousness, to create more researchers, to teach leisure time activities and pro-social activities that would take place uh, of this passive um, consumption-oriented, aggressive-oriented uh, passive consumption of violent entertainment media. I do find it interesting that that media literacy rates so high in your assessment of things that could be helpful. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what are some techniques that might be usefully taught as you know, under the umbrella of, of media literacy to young people or in schools more broadly, you know, to the citizenry more broadly, uh, that might have an effect. Well, uh, an exercise I came up, uh, came up with to use with college students was to have a large TV screen with uh, a mainstream, you know, volume and program on and uh, turn off the sound and have them just be privy to the violent images coming to them to deconstruct that image from the sound. And then the second would be to hide the image and only listen to the sound to see how the, this, uh, electronic environment is punctuated by violent, distressing sounds. And to ask them, uh, how does that make you feel? When you only watch this violence, how does it make you feel? To have them become more self-conscious about how they're viscerally affected by what they're being exposed to. And also to have them do frequency counts of the number of violent acts, to describe and define the violent acts, to see how girls and women are portrayed how often are they in leading roles? What are the voiceovers? Are they male or female? To look at uh, aggressive words and talk within violent media and to be really aware of how media advertisements very heavily funded in order to manipulate the human psyche, to buy more and to buy stuff that is not needed and stuff that is uh, polluting the world, literally, and has placed the United States as the number one national debtor in the world and created bankruptcy. I mean, to make all these connections between the well-being of everyday life and how these major corporate influences are trying to manipulate us to get us to buy certain things, and perhaps just as a byproduct, uh, we learn to behave in ways that are contrary to being fully human. I think with that, we're just about out of time. Uh, before we go, I just want to say thank you so much, Mariana, for taking the time to join us today. I find your book really provocative and super useful insofar as it gives us a great picture of the causes, but also, as you just did, offers us some compelling solutions for the crisis of school violence. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. 
Mariana King's book, The Crisis of School Violence, A New Perspective, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Madija Gos, Kyleen Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books. Books.